Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We got to move on. We got to study tonight on uh, Calvinism. Did we talk about unconditional election last time? Yes. Okay. So on unconditional election, I just again we're just going through this just to uh, familiarize ourselves with the tulip of Calvinism. And so I, I put down verses, obviously, that they, they try to use to support their position. One major verse they use, and on the next page, after unconditional election and right before limited atonement, is John 6, 44. So basically, in, to just recap a little bit about unconditional election, is that God chooses people unconditionally for salvation and chooses other people for hell or passes over them so they're going to hell anyway. And so that's what the idea of unconditional election. He chooses who he wants to save and he doesn't choose those he doesn't want to save. It's a barbaric, pagan, fatalistic view. It's called theistic determinism. That's what unconditional election is. It's theistic determinism, which God just determines who he wants to save and who he doesn't. Okay, so one of the passages is John six forty four. It's on the top of your page, on the next page above unconditional election. And they love to use this verse, but they use it out of context. And what you'll start seeing is many of these scriptures that I put down here that they use to support their views seem prima facie uh, that, okay, that seems like it teaches Calvinism. But when you look at more depth of the context, you will realize that they've taken it out of context. That passage says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, well, that seems very Calvinistic, and no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And so the Calvinists portray that there's this drawing of the Father because they're elected to the Son, and that's the ones who are going to get saved. Well, it seems on the face of it that, okay, maybe that passage teaches something like that. But then the question then becomes, well, what does the context say? And does Jesus define how the Father draws them to him? And he does. This is, again, the hermeneutic principle of if you don't understand the verse, keep reading. Somebody in the verse will explain it to you. And in this case, the Messiah explains this to them. In verse 41 of John 6, it says, The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said to him, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I come down from heaven? So Jesus is going to now talk to him about this. Jesus therefore answered and said to him, do not murmur among yourselves. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So those who get drawn to Jesus by the father, he'll resurrect them and give them everlasting life is the idea there. Verse 45. Now he goes in to explain what being drawn by the Father means. So he quotes one of the prophets. This is prophet Isaiah, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Okay, so that comes directly out of Isaiah 54, 13. And it says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great 
shall be the peace of your children. So that's a prediction of how Israel will be taught. They will be taught by the Lord, by the Father. Okay. Then he explains not only what he's saying, but what Isaiah is meaning. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What did he just say? How do you learn and hear from the Father? How does the Father testify to Jesus? I heard somebody say it. The Word. What Isaiah 54, 13, and what Jesus is explaining to them, no one can come to, the, to, to me lest the Father draws him. Well, in a previous argument that he made with them, he says, you seek life in the Scriptures, but the very Scriptures you seek life in testify of me. And his point is, for some reason, you can't read the scriptures right, because if you did read them right, you would come to me. And therefore, in this passage, he is saying the Father draws people through the word of God. Through, basically, at this point, it was the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you accepted it for what it said about the Messiah, when Jesus was on the scene, you would have automatically be drawn to him because that's what the scriptures testified. That's him. He has all the markings that God put for the Messiah. He did the three messianic miracles, everything that we could possibly want, he did. Therefore, the drawing is not some mystical drawing of the elect to Jesus. It is the drawing through the word. And please remember, what's the principle that Paul gave in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing what? The word of God. It's totally consistent, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The reason they don't come to Jesus is because they don't believe the word of God, if that makes sense. That's the opposite, that they don't believe God's word. That's the problem. If they did, they would be drawn to him. And saying that's the same thing with even dealing with people today. The reason they don't come to Jesus is because they don't believe God's word. That's the basis of everything. If they did, Jesus would be no problem for them. He wouldn't be a stumbling block. The cross would not be foolish to them if they believed the word of God. Remember in the story, it's a true story, that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? And then at the end, the guy that's in Hades says, hey, send someone to go tell my brothers. And what does Jesus say? If they don't believe what? Moses and the prophets, they will not believe someone resurrecting from the dead. Bingo. In order to believe in the resurrection of the Messiah, you have to believe in the scriptures that predict his resurrection. A miracle won't change someone's heart. Even though we think it would, it won't. It's the word of God that changes people's heart because the word of God, according to the writer of Hebrews, can do what to the spirit and the soul? It can penetrate and divide even the soul from the spirit. So it's the word of God that does the act of going into the person's heart and speaking to that heart. Now, can that word be rejected? Of course it can. Absolutely it can be rejected. But you see, just quoting that passage out of context and not explaining it, well, it says all that the Father gives him. So I asked the Calvinist, how does the Father bring people to Jesus? How is that? How did it? Well, it's mystical. I, and I just want, give me another verse. Give me another verse that explains this mystical drawing to Jesus. Now, 
The drawing to Jesus is also not just the word of God, it's the Holy Spirit using the word of God, right? He uses the word of God to draw, to come in. And what does the Holy Spirit convict them of? Sin, righteousness, judgment. So the Holy Spirit will do his work on the heart of sin, righteous judgment, and use the word of God as well to accompany that to draw people. Can that drawing be resisted? Yes, it can. Because what did Stephen say to the religious leaders? After he told his whole story and, and basically gave them a whole biblical story of the chronology of what's happened to that point, they reject him and what does he say to them? You always resist the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say when he was mourning over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not drawn? You're not willing. Indicating that Stephen and Jesus are both indicating a freedom to resist and a freedom with their will to not come to the call. So you can't get away from that. And so understand there's a game being played with Calvinism. Of putting these scriptures here without a context, it seems like it supports their view, but when you start digging deeper, nothing supports it. The whole context, the whole Bible doesn't support this theistic determinism. Anyway, let's move on. Let's go to the L in the tulip, limited atonement. Limited atonement for them means that Jesus only dies for the elect, the chosen ones. He doesn't die for the sins of the world. He dies only for the elect. And so when you ask them, well, I thought it says he dies for the sins of the world. Well, world doesn't mean world. All doesn't mean all. World doesn't mean world. Well, what does it mean? Well, it, just, it means that different people from different parts of the world in different eras will come. But it doesn't mean he died for the whole world. Let me go back a little bit. Well, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's starting it, and John the Baptist sees him. And what does John the Baptist say about the Messiah as he sees his cousin walking? Behold, who does what? Sins of the world. You can't miss that. The forerunner is proclaiming that Messiah is dying not just for the Jews, but he's dying for the Goyim, the nations, the world. It's not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. It's not selective. It's anyone who comes. Okay, so the problem with the game that you're playing with like the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses, when they say Jesus, do they mean the same Jesus in Mormonism as you and I believe? Okay, no, so you know that. So the Jehovah Witness that comes to you and says, I believe in Jesus, you know he believes in the Archangel Michael Jesus, right? He's, it's a different Jesus. When a Calvinist comes to you and says, world or all, please understand they're pouring a different idiosyncratic meaning into that term to make it fit their theological presupposition. All doesn't mean all and world doesn't mean world. But yet I know John the Baptist means world. And other passages say he died for the sins of the world. So anyway, that's their limited atonement. Okay, so they'll use these verses out of context as a pretext to support their view. And again, it's back to John 6 right there in the first one I want to show you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Okay, so now after we've studied John 6, what does that phrase mean? 
How does a father give him people? Through the word, right? And the one who comes to me, basically by faith in the word of God, I will certainly not cast out. I am not going to reject anybody who believes in me. And why would he have to say that? Why would he have to throw that in? Why would Messiah says, I'm not going to reject people who come to me in faith? What is the Hebraic thinking about salvation? Not Jesus, but the Hebrews. What do they think about salvation? Who is the only ones that can be saved? The Jews. The Gentiles are lost as a ball in high weeds, and there's no redemption for them. Only the Jews will be saved or proselytes, but not Goyim, who just simply believe in Yahweh. So Jesus is adding that statement, I will in no wise cast out, and the implication is no Goyim that you deem is unsavable. I will not cast them out. I will accept their faith because salvation is based on faith. That's why he adds that to that. I don't know how you get limited atonement out that, but again, it comes back to, well, it's only the ones that the Father gives him. Well, we've already debunked that. First John, uh, how about this one? John 10, 26. And again, we're going to get more in depth on these scriptures, but I just want to just give you a cursory view. For you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Wow, that seems like a clincher. Wow, you can't believe Jesus unless you're a sheep. What does he say here? Does that support? Hey, look, the Calvinist view of saying, of course you can't believe what I'm saying. You're not one of mine. You're not chosen. Is that what Jesus is saying? He's saying this to the religious leaders. That's the context. You don't believe in me because you're not my sheep. So here's my question. Or let's pretend I'm the Calvinist and I'm talking to you about this. What would you tell me? I'm, so here's the Calvinist. He says, you see, you can't believe in Jesus until you're regenerated first and then you can believe. You have to be a sheep first and then you can believe in Jesus. What would you say to that guy? There's the verse right there I'm using to, as a pretext for my Calvinism. Can you believe before you're a sheep? So what is he saying here? Can they become a sheep? Okay, so the statement doesn't preclude them not becoming a sheep, right? It's not preventing them from becoming a sheep. He's just telling them a point in fact. When you're an unbeliever, you're not going to believe what I say. But if you want to become a sheep, if you want to come to faith, basically, you will believe what I say, and you will follow me. So a lot of this right here, if you look at my sheep, he said, my sheep hear my voice. Okay? Is he talking about after salvation, before salvation, or both? What is he saying? He's using shepherd language. So I want you to think of a shepherd image. If I'm a sheep and I don't have a shepherd, I'm lost. I don't know where to go, right? Everybody that's ever had sheep, especially in that day, knows that every sheep needs a shepherd because the sheep is lost without a shepherd. And so the idea is once a shepherd is in place, then regardless of who's in the flock, the flock will then follow that guy and they become accustomed to him, and they become used to him, and they can smell him, they know his voice, and he just has to do a few things, and he can lead him wherever he wants to go. So the idea in salvation is, again, take off the metaphors, if you're a truth seeker, 
you will know that what Messiah is saying is true based on the word of God. Truth seekers follow the word of God. And if you follow the word of God and want to know who God is, he reveals himself to you and he says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Those are promises for truth seekers. And you can hear the call, so to speak, of salvation that goes out to those who are truth seekers. Now, once you become a believer, then you spend the rest of your life still seeking the truth as what Messiah reveals later on in your sanctification and your walk with him. So sheep hear the master because that sheep is looking for a shepherd. Sheep that are not looking for shepherds are those people who don't want the shepherd, if that makes sense. They reject the shepherd. And so anyway, it's an issue of understanding that it's not that the Pharisees or religious leaders cannot become sheep. They can if they will stop suppressing the truth and come to faith. And as we know, in the book of Acts, many of the religious leaders become sheep. They actually were, were convinced, after it's all said and done, by Peter's speech in Acts, right? They saw tongues happen with the apostles. You remember that? Fire came down upon each one of them. They were able to speak in the native language of the other Jews that were there from different parts of the country. And then Peter makes a speech, and it says they were cut to the heart. So uh, with the sign gift of tongues and then the speech of Peter, it was enough to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. What was the big deal about tongues? What was that about? Why is that such a sign to the Jews? Them able to speak a foreign language that they haven't learned. When the Jews saw that, what do you think came to their mind about all of a sudden, everybody here hears the same language? It was twofold. It was a good thing and a bad thing. Do you know what the good thing was? Every Jew knew what was promised by the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. The Messianic kingdom would establish one language again. The Messianic kingdom reverses Babylon. What did God do at Babylon? Divided the nations by languages. When they saw the apostles speaking in all the native language, they instantly thought, oh my goodness, it's the reversal of Babylon, which God judged, but then promised by the prophets that he would reestablish one language in the Messianic kingdom by the Messiah. Oh my goodness, I'm seeing the reversal of Babylon right in front of my very eyes. That's number one. The negative, though, is this, that Mo I think Moses and some of the other prophets predicted to Israel, when you're messed up and God is judging you, you will hear the voice of foreign languages in your country. And they were hearing foreign languages. So at the same time they heard the voice, they all were speaking foreign languages other than Hebrew. And so there were many Jews from, you know, Asia Minor, different places from all over the world of these Jews that had come there for Pentecost, and they were hearing foreign languages. Even though each person understood what they were saying, they were still hearing foreign languages. So not only is it a reversal of Babylon, but it was, it's, a re, it's a rebuke to Israel. You're about to be judged because now in your country, you are hearing foreign languages. And when did that judgment come? 70 A.D., that's what the prophets predicted. Moses predicted that. You will hear foreign languages. 
So when they saw that, you can see as a Jew, they would be cut to the heart, and then Peter's saying, you killed the Messiah. And now they're seeing the signs and wonders of reversal of Babylon and the judgment of Israel. It probably really scared them, really scared them. Because now we realize that Messiah is God in the flesh, and we made a big, big mistake. And then 3,000 got saved that day. So it's not that they can't become sheep. It's that those who refuse the truth refuse to become a sheep. They don't want to be. So that's what that passage is talking about. Let's take a break, five minutes. Uh, grab you something to drink or eat, and then I'll come back, and I want to explain a little bit more, and we'll wrap that area up. Okay, let's get rolling here. All right, just a couple more uh, verses, then we'll get to irresistible grace. Again, we're just doing a survey right now, but other passages they use for unconditional election. You see there Matthew 15, 24 on the next page. It says, he answered and says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So the Calvinists will say, see, he's only sent to his lost sheep. And in their interpretation, the sheep are the elect. The sheep are the chosen. And so they say, look, Jesus is saying he's only sent to his chosen elect people that are going to believe in him, and that's all he's sent to. He's not sent to other people who have not been elected to salvation. Is that what he's saying? No, obviously. What is he saying? What's the context of Matthew 15? A Gentile woman is trying to get his attention, right? And he's showing them a lesson, an object lesson of what this lady will do to push through and to believe because she wants to be healed. And he's doing this as an object lesson he says that phrase to a woman that, you know, says, son of David, please heal me, basically. And the disciples have already pushed, and we talked about that, that she's pushing through hindrances. He purposely puts up a hindrance in front of her to see if she'll push through. He knows she's going to push through, but he wants to show the disciples of how desperate she is to believe in him and to be healed. And so he say, it says this, as she's crying out to him, and she says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean the elect, the chosen? What is or who are the lost sheep of Israel? Yes. So during the ministry of the Messiah, his mission was to the Jews first, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Okay. That's the pattern. And so for three and a half years, he spent his time witnessing to the Jewish people. Now, notice what it says, the lost sheep of Israel. Does that mean he's only coming for just the elect Jews and he's leaving alone those who are not elect? Who are the lost sheep of Israel? All the Jews. All the Jews. You cannot interpret that passage any other way, because if you impose, well, he's only coming for the elect, and you just totally ignore that passage, you don't understand the ministry of the Messiah to Israel. He does reach out to the goyim occasionally. They'll come to him, like the woman, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, the, the centurion, and, and Gentiles will get saved in his ministry, there's no doubt about that. But that will occur later when the church goes out to the Gentiles. His primary ministry is to the Jews. Why? Why to the Jews first? 
because they have been chosen by God in the Exodus and by all the way back to Abraham with the Abrahamic promise, and they were chosen as a nation, they were chosen to represent him, to be the priestly nation, to carry the scriptures, have the prophets, and then produce the Messiah. They, because of that heavy burden of carrying the weight of ministry for the entire world, get first shot. And when they get their shot, then he goes to the, the church, will go to the Gentiles. By the way, that pattern then is repeated by the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. He will even state this in Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And as you watch the book of Acts, Paul will always go to the Jews first and in whatever city he's at, minister to the Jews. Some will believe, some won't. And then sometimes he gets so angry, he says, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles now. But he will always go to witness to the Jews and then the Gentiles second because they get priority because of carrying the scriptures and the prophets and everything that the Jews were given which was a heavy burden that put them under duress, under attack by Satan, under extreme persecution, and even persecution today. So they get first shot. Okay, so with that being the case, when he states this, of course, he's sending to his, he's talking about Israel. It doesn't mean it excludes other people. It's just part of his ministry at the current time. How about the next one? This is totally always taken out of context. Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. See, they'll say God loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. So Jacob is the saved and Esau is the unsaved. You see, he's talking about individuals. Is that what Paul is talking about in Romans 9? He is not talking about individuals because the whole context is about what happened to Israel. And what Paul is trying to do is he's talking about, in this particular context, nations. Jacob I loved, or Israel I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The idea in, is a Hebraism or Jewish idiom and love and hate. Jesus used that same idiom when he talked about discipleship and he said, you must love me and hate your father and mother. So if I use that Jewish idiom from Jesus and I apply it to here, what is he saying? What does he mean by hate your father and mother? It's an idiom that refers to what? Priority. I am the priority over your mother and father. I am the priority before your family. I come before your kids. I come before your wife. I come before your husband. I come before your mom and dad. I am ahead of everybody. The minute you flip-flop that and put your family above Jesus, you're upside down really quick. Okay, so love and hate in the Hebrew context means preference or priority versus not being used in service. Okay, so if I take that and I put it on this text, what is he saying about Israel and what is he saying about Esau? Even as individuals or even as a nation. Let's just take the individual thing. What is he saying of who will carry the Abrahamic covenant? Esau or Jacob? Jacob. Jacob is selected not for salvation. He is selected to carry the Abrahamic covenant. Esau is not. And why is Esau not? Why didn't Esau get the rights to carry it? He sold it for porridge. You're done. It doesn't mean Esau's not saved. 
Because he wanted it back once he realized there were material blessings attached to it. The writer who says, Hebrews said he, he begged for it back. And once it, what said had been done, it's done. So I expect to see Esau in heaven. It's not that he's not a believer. He forfeited his right to carry on the Abrahamic covenant. And so therefore his brother got it. It's a selection of service. Now I go back and I, I understand that Paul's talking about individuals, but then he's referring to nations. What nation was picked out by God and formed to be a light to the Gentiles and the priestly nation? Israel, simple. So when Paul is pointing this out, he's pointing out not only to the individuals, but to the nations, and that Israel I have loved or preferred or chosen to be my special people to carry out the mission. And when I say Esau I have hated, I didn't select him to carry on the Abrahamic covenant and the promises thereof. That's simple. But yet they say, you see right there, he hates some people and he loves others. Where in scripture does God ever say in scripture that he hates people? I can't find a verse. He hates wickedness. He hates evildoers, right? He hates the doing. He hates the practices. But the scripture says God so loved the world. So if they say that he hates people, they're contradicting what scripture teaches about God's love. God's character and nature is love. So whatever emanates from him is always a loving thing, not a hateful thing. Now question, why would they do this? Why would they take a passage that's so clear? If you know the context, you know the Jewish background, you know the Jewish idiom, why would they do that? Because it, you guys can understand that, right? Anyone can understand it. How come they don't do it? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit their theological presupposition. It doesn't fit their system. Because if they have to admit what the Jewish meaning is, then their whole system comes crumbling down. And yes, they do believe that God only loves the elect. They do believe that. If they're academically honest and consistent with five-point Calvinism, they have to admit it. Just like D.A. Carson admits it, just like uh, A.W. Pink admits it, just like uh, John Piper admits it. All the consistent Calvinists say that God only loves the elect and doesn't and hates other people. So why did he create them? For some cruel joke? I guess so. I don't know. But you can see the problem with, with this. Anyway, let's move down to irresistible grace real quick. Irresistible grace then. Irresistible grace means that God gives grace to people and you can't resist it. So God saves people based on his own decrees, and when he saves you, you can't resist it. You are forced to believe in him at that point in time. He goes inside of you, changes your nature, makes you born again, and then you can believe in him. But you have no decision in the process. You cannot make a decision. He makes the decision for you, and you're forced to believe in him. That's what irresistible grace means. And they'll say, well, you can't believe because you have a sin nature. Where does it say in the scriptures anywhere that even though I possess a sin nature, I still can't believe? Where does it say that? It doesn't. You can't find one. It's their system saying it. And so, let me ask you a, 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 just a simple question, a simple analogy. If I give you a gift, do you have to take it? So it implies, if I give you a gift, you can resist that gift and say, no, I don't want that gift. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want it. I'm good. 
They're saying that when God gives you the gift, you can't say no. He just forces the gift. No, no, you need this, and you're going to take it. Whether you like it or not, you take it. That's how they see irresistible grace. Does that seem foreign to you? Does that seem like the God of the Bible, that what you have read all your life is that God forces himself on people and then regenerates them without their permission? Well, they'll say, God's sovereign. He doesn't need anyone's permission. Well, understand you misinterpret sovereignty, but understand if God made us in his image and we're image bearers, it also means that one of the communicable attributes that he has given us is called a will. In order to be a free creature, you must possess a will. If you do not possess your own will, and God changes your will, then you're nothing but an automaton. You're a robot. This is a game that someone's playing with you. And you're, wind, you're wound up, and you do whatever you're programmed to do. So, in the, in the idea, then, is even though I possess a sin nature, it doesn't mean I can't answer the call to salvation. God has to put the call out. There's no doubt about that. But I'm the one responsible for picking up the phone. And I can pick it up, shut it down, or pick it up and receive the call or receive the gift and because of my own volition. And that's the only way you, you, you can understand it. That's what the scriptures teach. You have what's called libertarian free will. Calvinists will say, we don't believe in libertarian free will. We believe in compatibilistic free will. Well, that's a fancy term. Compatibilistic free will versus libertarian free will. We believe as non-Calvinists in libertarian free will. What is compatibilist free will for Calvinists? It's this. Like Luther wrote in Bondage of the Will, or Calvin wrote in his works, and many of these Calvinists write, they say you're only free to obey the nature that you have. Did you catch that? You're only free to obey the nature that you have. Therefore, since you have a sin nature before you're saved, you can only obey that sin nature, and you cannot do otherwise. So you're just an evildoer. You have no hope. You cannot willfully change your desires. You're nothing but your dog. And a dog only barks, and he only eats dog food, and he, he does dog, dog things. You cannot act outside of that sin nature. Is that what the Bible teaches? Because if you're a dog... If I speak English to that dog, or whatever language I come up with to that dog, he still doesn't understand what I'm talking about, right? So that dog can't respond to me, really, unless I give him food or something, but he can't understand my language. And that's really how the Calvinists look at people. They're just, you're like a dog. You just, you can't respond. You have a dog nature. And so God has to go in and change you from being a dog to being a human, so to speak, so you can hear him. I'm just using an analogy. And so compatibility in their sense means that because you're a dog, because you have a sin nature, and you can only act in the freedom of that nature, you can't make a decision for Christ. Therefore, God has to go inside of you and change your nature and then give you the freedom at that point to believe. But you have to be regenerated first and receive a new nature so you can believe. Does that make sense? See, they'll tell you, well, we believe in freedom, 
Ah, yes, but you believe in compatibility freedom. You're a compatibilist. That version of freedom is foreign to me. I do not see that in the Bible. I do not recognize any scripture that says, in order for me to believe, my nature has to be changed. I don't see a scripture for that. What I see in scripture is it teaches libertarian free will. That yes, even though I have a sin nature, I can act against that nature. That I can do things that are actually good. Even though they're not gonna get me saved, even unbelievers can do good things, okay? They say they can't. And again, I'm not talking about salvation, but you and I both know there are unbelievers out there that are moral people. It doesn't make them going to heaven, but they are doing, quote unquote, good things. They're doing things of God even though they don't know it. Does that make sense? They'll have a great marriage and they're unbelievers. They've been married 55 years or whatever, and they've had a great marriage. How come they had a great marriage? It's because they practice biblical principles without knowing it. That's all. But nonetheless, they're doing good in their marriage. We would say they're doing good. They're doing a lot better than other Christians. And having a sin nature doesn't prevent us from responding because we're free will creatures. Therefore, what I see from Scripture is libertarian free will. That there's nothing that forces me to do anything. I could be influenced from the outside by different things, circumstances in my life, people in my life, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. Those outside forces can come into me and influence me, but they can't change me. Compatibility freedom says, no, you have to, God has to go in there and totally change you before you can even believe. So libertarian freedom says, no, it comes from the outside. You see the difference? One is internal, one is outside. That's why we pray for people. God, do whatever you need to do in that person's life to get their attention. That's, you're praying a libertarian prayer. That's libertarian free will. Because a Calvinist would not pray that. What could a Calvinist pray about someone's salvation? What could they pray? Because it's all been decreed. Lord, I pray my kids are saved, but they may not be because if you didn't decree them to be saved, I, so I, I can't even pray for people's salvation. Ah, now you're, you, absolutely. And I, I, I hope you guys heard that. That what you start realizing, if you believe in total depravity, then like he said, irresistible grace becomes a necessity for that. Because you have to have that if you can't respond, right? That is, makes total sense. And it's back to my original statement about Calvinism. When someone says, I'm just a two-pointer, I'm just a three-pointer, I'm a four-pointer, or whatever, I'm a one-pointer, they don't even understand the system when they say that. Because as he's pointing out, in order for the system to be consistent, you have to believe in all five points. If someone says, I believe in total depravity, then you can't go over here and act like you're a libertarian. You just can't, because you will be contradicting yourself at some point in time. And unfortunately, a lot of pastors do that. They'll say one thing over here, and then they'll say another thing over there, and you're sitting there saying, that's confusing. You just said that, but yet you said this. And then this is what they'll do. They'll punt it to pietism or mysticism. Well, I don't know. On the back of the door, I know in heaven, when you enter through the front, uh, all ye are welcome or whatever, come ye whoever wants to. And then on the back, chosen from the foundation of the world is in the back of the sign. That is the biggest cop-out I have ever heard. 
It's because they can't answer the inconsistencies of Calvinism, so they punt it to mysticism. Well, we'll just figure it out in heaven. No, God wants you to figure it out right now. Because if you're going to go with this deceptive doctrine that says people can't save them, that says people can't be saved unless they're regenerated, unless they're chosen. And so I don't know what that does to your evangelism. I don't know what that does to your prayer life. How do you pray for anybody? You don't because everything's been decreed. And how do you deal with people who have been traumatized? Well, that was the decree of God. Seriously, though, folks, I'm telling you, if you ask a Calvinist, how come so-and-so was raped? How come so-and-so was killed? How come so-and-so died when they were a child? You know what they'll tell you? It was decreed from eternity past. What? Are you this close to saying that God's the author of sin? Because that's what I'm hearing. I know you're not trying to say that, are you? They'll say, well, nothing happens outside of God's will. God's meticulously in control. Ah, then you are saying it, aren't you? You're saying he decrees evil. Well, he, didn't do, he doesn't do it. Ah, are we playing a game here? He decrees evil, but, but he doesn't do it. Who's responsible then if he decrees it? Uh-huh, we got a problem. And they know they have a theological problem because they're blaming evil on God. That's where that system takes you to. That's why you have to be consistent, and that's why it doesn't work. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.